Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Over the past year, icy anger had frozen her grief into her bones, but recently the marrow seemed overwhelmed by the effort of this compression and had been emitting a kind of fog like dry ice vapors that displaced the air in her lungs and slowed her brain. It was as if those noxious vapors were breathing her words, further sharpening her already lacerating tongue. She'd begun messing up at work enough to give the ever-circling hyenas in her department a whiff of vulnerability. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm talking to Alice C. Early about her debut novel, The Moon Always Rising, about a Scottish woman who finds herself starting a new life on the Caribbean island of Mevis. She'd thought the new century would find her married to her childhood soulmate, rejuvenating her family's Scottish Highlands estate and finally earning a managing director title at her investment bank. She also hoped to have the courage to finally learn why her mother left at the, when she was age two. But when 2000 dawns, Els is in mourning, soon to be unemployed, broke, and sharing a rundown plantation house with the ghost of the former owner. Hi, Alice. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. It's great to talk to you. So you've had several successful careers. And the first thing I want to know is, how did you come to write a novel at this stage in your life? I have wanted to write fiction ever since I was in college. I was a creative writing major, English major with a creative writing uh, focus in college. And I thought I might do some writing after that, but it just didn't happen because I had to go to work. I needed to work. And I picked a career that was very all-encompassing that involved a lot of writing, but it was business writing of all kinds, of brochures, of white papers, of speeches, of proposals, of everything. And after doing that for many years, I decided to quit my job, which was then as an executive recruiter with a global practice, and moved to Martha's Vineyard to help take care of my parents who were then aging and needing support, and to move in with the man with whom I've been living now for 20 years. So this was in 1999. And I thought at that point, aha, this is my chance. Now I can start to write fiction. And it wasn't as easy as I thought. It is not a spigot you can turn on. So I did actually some more nonfiction writing. I wrote a uh, corporate history and began noodling around about writing a book. But it wasn't really until maybe 10 years after that, that the pieces of the book that I had been writing, the little fragments began to fall more into place. By then, both of my parents had died. I had a little more time on my hands. And instead of devoting that time 
to what was then my day job and remains my day job, which is uh, as career, a career change, career transition coach, I decided to spend more time on my writing and I got serious about it. I joined a writing group led by a marvelous uh, writer editor here on the Vineyard. And I began to take those fragments and work them, get critique, rewrite, 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 and eventually put things together into a book. And that took another 10 years. Mm-hmm. So you were in that world of bankers and workplace. Uh, how, okay, you definitely managed to capture the essence of male sexual harassment in the, in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. Well, how, how fun was that to write? It was fun to write because it was a little bit of give back. And I, you know, I wrote this book, it was finished before the Me Too era. And I lived through an, a time in my work life when I was the first, the only, often the youngest woman executive. It was a scramble. It was tough. And there were so many inappropriate advances and touches and protestations of affection and, you know, grabbing in the elevator and everything that women talk about these days. And at that point, I and everybody I knew felt that it was just what you had to suck up and keep going because there was no recourse. I did at one point tell one guy in one elevator, if you ever do that to me again, I'm going to, I'm going to tell on you basically. And that was somewhat, that was overheard the door opened just at the wrong moment. And, and somebody stepped into the elevator and said, what was that about? And I said, um, nothing and moved on uh-huh. because there was, there was no place to take that. You couldn't, there was no human resources and it was just what all of us put up with. So I've been sort of seething about that for 40 years and watching younger women suffer some of the same advances and problems. And then when Me Too hit, I thought, well, finally, this is out in the world and maybe something will change. But my book was before that. I really, uh, I started uh, looking for editors and publishers with what I thought was a finished manuscript probably four years ago. And, but it was a chance to say, this is a dog eat dog world. I have a character here who's got a lot of talent and a lot of strength and a lot of dedication and she's suffering these things and I just want to have her have a chance to get some of her own back so Mm -hmm. I wrote her that way and gave her that chance and she's a lot more forceful than you (laughs) (laughs) she is more forceful than I was at that time that's true okay um you've mentioned that you live in a tourist destination Martha's Vineyard Mm -hmm. and that you're very aware of visitors who fall in love with the place based on vacations yeah, and then they think they're part of it. So it's a comfort in the book. There's a lot of conversation about this, about what makes someone a resident who decides and who decides what you think of as your home. Yeah, it is an issue that I, I, I look at, I grapple with all the time here because I am what we call a wash ashore. I am a third generation summer kid. My grandfather bought a place here in the 20s. My mother spent all of her summers here. I spent all of my summers here. And 
It's been my family home in a way ever since 1922. But at the same time, we were summer people. And when I came here, I was painfully aware of being somebody who had decided to make a home in a place of fantasy. I think a lot of our our Washashore population are people like me who have been here in a particular time of year for a very long time and who only know the island that way and who love it, love it, love it deeply. And they've invested here. They own homes. They love their life here. They have friends. But they only see a certain part of the island and only see part of of the economy and the community. But they have fallen in love with that deeply. And they want to make their home here. But their take on the island is completely different from people who are third, fourth, fifth generation native islanders. Um, certainly different from the Wampanoag Native Americans who live in the town of Aquina pr- primarily, who have been here all along. Different from the Cape Verdeans and the Portuguese fishermen and whalers who were the families and the, and the whaling families from generations back and all of their descendants. So we have this large group of usually relatively wealthy people who come here to make their second homes their first home. And it creates an interesting dynamic between the economic layers and the social layers. And there are people who cross between all of those things. But when I first came here, having been a summer person, and suddenly I'm now part of the working and trade community, I began to see that my husband and I were sometimes invited to his clients' homes for dinner, and all of the other guests were there also their tradespeople, because my husband is a furniture designer and craftsman, and these are his clients, and they say see him as part of the trade community, and I was too, even though I had this big executive New York international background. They didn't know about that, and so. We'd go to dinner and it was fun, but they would invite their plumbers and their landscapers. And it would be sort of the night they devote during the summer to having their their cast of characters. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And you managed to take this whole scenario of Martha's Vineyard and transport it in your book to the Caribbean. Well, (laughs) thank you. I hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was also an, and because I am such an outsider to Nevis compared to the layer that I uh, inhabit here at the vineyard. In Nevis, I really was a visitor, and I knew that acutely. And I knew that my character Els is a visitor; that she has fallen in love with a place that she's only been in for a couple of weeks, and. She's bringing all of her baggage with her and all of her assumptions. And one of the things I wanted to to work on in the book was, what does that mean for an island like Nevis, where you have a local population who are people of color, it is their island, they run it, and you have the man, which is the resort population, the moneyed population, the the people who have most of the jobs to bestow. And that is a very small group 
you know, the white population of, of even expats is small by comparison to the people who are native to the island or who are part of the Caribbean diaspora and are from many islands but happen to be living on Nevis now. So I was just fascinated with how does all that play together and how does my character make mistakes when she thinks that she's understanding her new world and she's really seeing it through her own lens. So part of what I was working on was what is that like for her and what is it like for the people she comes into contact with when they have to deal with her and recognize that she is seeing them through a white, privileged, really uh, empire kind of lens. Mm -hmm. And that was fun to play with as well. And she lives now in New York City. She was, but she hails from the Scottish Highlands. Right. And can you talk about how how did you decide to have her from Scotland and New York? All that. Uh, well, I decided that she should not be an American. That was completely arbitrary on my part. But because there are so many people who come from various parts of the British Empire who are living in Nevis and Nevisians who go to other parts of the British family of company of countries. They go to Canada, they get their education various places and they come back. That I thought that, that it should be a sort of a UK connection. I wanted her to work in London, I, but I wanted her to be Scottish and not British. And that was because I had this inkling that the Scots are a breed apart that there is a pride, a feistiness, an independence. And as I did my research, I realized that that was really true and that I was picking her instinctually as coming from a place of, of great uh, independence and love of the land and that it would work with what I, what, how I wanted her to be. So as I went into to research more and more about Scotland and to have a Scottish sensitivity reader who helped me to think through what would she really be like? How would they say these things so that the Scottish words that are in there are, I hope, correct? Uh, it, got, it got to be even more and more correct to me that she be Scottish and not British and not certainly not American. So she has, she has been in all these places she has picked up linguistic twists from the United States and from living and working in London and from being from the Scottish Highlands and from living and working in Edinburgh. So there are, are places where she might not sound like she comes from any of those places, but there are also, she also has a deep-seated character built in the Highlands. Mm-hmm. We haven't talked a lot about other characters in the book, but I've kind of felt like you incorporate the senses almost like an additional character, the mm. scent, the sights, the smells, the sounds. Let's talk about that. I had a very wise teacher and I've read about making your setting come alive. And it's all around how many of the senses can you get into every sentence? Sometimes you have to be stupid to try to squeeze them all into one sentence. But if you are attuned, 
And if you're always asking yourself as a writer, how would that sound? How would it smell? What's the tactile piece that I could have in here? What does that fabric feel like? Or what does that hot sand feel like to the bottoms of your feet? We, we talk so much more about what we hear and what we see, primarily what we see. But if you forget about taste and smell and, and hearing and, and touch, and you forget about all of those senses, and you forget about that sort of umami, I'm a, I'm a foodie, so there's that extra sense in all of your tastes, there's also that undefinable thing that is mouthfeel, that is umami. If you forget about what contributions those make, you're just missing an opportunity to surround your reader with all of those different sensual kind of signals that I think are so important to helping your reader be in your setting and making your setting come alive for the reader. So it was really fun to pay attention to those. When I'm in Nevis, I'm always making notes. What do the birds sound like? What do the crickets sound like? What are the frogs sound like? What what are what does the waves sound like? How does it smell? What does it smell like in the morning as opposed to what it smells like in the evening? And I've been for, for 20 years really keeping notes on all of those things so that I could go back and remind myself when I wasn't there. I did a lot of the writing there though, and a lot of the revising there. So mm. I could just step out on the gallery and smell the air and be reminded of what it's what Ylang Ylang smells like after a rain, which is almost an overwhelmingly beautiful scent. Well, while I was reading your book one Saturday afternoon, one cold, rainy Saturday afternoon in Chicago, um, <laughs> you're, I, I had to jump up and, and make some mango salsa and pour myself a glass of tequila. Just. Oh, great. <laughs> I'm so glad to hear that. Let's talk about the sailing. There's a lot of sailing that goes on. Are you, a, are you someone who loves sailing? Did you have to research it? Both. I grew up sailing very small boats. My parents bought a what is was a sailfish. Now they're mostly sunfish, but but it was a this flat fiberglass boat, the simplest boat you can possibly sail. And I learned to sail on that. And so did all of my siblings. And that boat we still have. Larry and I now use it as our picnic table because he built a cradle for it. It has a flat top and it sits out on the edge of the pond. And when we have open air cocktail parties, we use it as the bar. But in my high school years, my boyfriend had, and his family had a much larger sailboat. And I used to actually go sailing with his family here at the vineyard. We'd take off and we'd go sailing and we'd stay on the boat and sleep over and go to these various islands. And I raced with them every once in a while. And it was a real eye-opener to me to be on a, a much bigger boat than anything my family would ever want. My mother is a terrible sailor. She gets seasick at the idea, so we did. So they never would have gone on any anything larger. But then I have some friends who have either who are great sailors and have chartered much larger boats or owned them. And we had the opportunity while we were in the Caribbean one time to go on one of these mega yachts that one of my friends and her husband and some other buddies of theirs had chartered that came with a hot and cold running crew. And I was just astonished at how gorgeous this boat was and how everything was so well thought out and how 
luxurious it was. I mean, the stateroom was state of the art. The showers amazed me. And so even though Liz, Liz is the boat captain, and that is a nickname. His name is not really Liz, but that's what he goes by. And his boat is an, is an antique, a boat that was resurrected from a wreck and restored. And it, it's, a, it's a beautiful old sailing boat. But it has been updated so that he has modern conveniences and radar and all the things that he needs in order to use it for charter. So it's, a, it's an amalgam. But when you look at it, it's an antique boat. And yet I knew kind of how, how the areas had to be laid out and how an old boat could be inside behind the walls, could have modern fittings and could run like a modern racing yacht. So that was really where some of that came from. Mm. Just over the many years, being on many, many boats and having many, many sailor friends and being around sailors and just living uh, at the edge of the sea almost all of my life. I'm on the edge of Lake Michigan. I'm really good at having a glass of wine in the back of a motorboat. <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. I have a friend who has the most beautiful motorboat. And one time we went out for a sail in the Thimble Islands off of Connecticut at sunset. Mm. And the, the light was that honey colored light that you get. And here we are lounging around on these beautiful cushions in the back of this motorboat, drinking, I don't know what. It was magical. So I am not somebody who calls motorboats stink pots. Okay. I, just, okay. <laughs> I, I really, I, they have a beautiful place in the world. Um, but I, but sailing was always my first love. And it comes out in the book. Um, so I usually stay away from magical realism, but you managed to skillfully incorporate it in a way that we can understand how much of Elle's despair uh, comes into seeing this ghost. What do you expect your readers to make of Jack? You're not the only one who doesn't like magical realism. I found that that was a real sticking point in trying to find an, an agent because a lot of them said, oh, I don't do paranormal. And I thought, I didn't write paranormal. I wrote magical realism. There's a difference. Um, Jack. Jack is my favorite character. He was so much fun to write. He, but the way I wrote Jack was to think about a bunch of men that I've known, all characters, and mush them all together into this sort of outrageous person who is petulant and moody and funny and sexy and seductive and annoying. And I took that kind of a character in life and decided that he should just be pretty much the same way in death. And that all I would do was to figure out a supernatural mechanism whereby he could appear to Els. And I did research and I delved into the superstition tech, uh, traditions of the Caribbean and the religions of the Caribbean. And, but I didn't stick with any of them. I decided I would make up my own ghost and have him come and go as I pleased, but that I would at least be respectful of some of the traditions of jumbies and some of the folklore about jumbies, of which I'd read quite a bit. And a jumbie is what many Caribbeans call some kind of a ghost or, or spiritual apparition. They have lots of different rules in different parts of the Caribbean about how those jumbies should behave. So I took some of them. But I decided that Jack would appear 
in a quite a lifelike way. Some of my readers said, my God, he's so corporeal. And he is. And that was intentional. And that he would look not scary and not sort of floaty and not like Casper. And he would be not a poltergeist who would move things and make noises but never appear. So I decided that Jack would be as real as I thought he could be. And that I would have him part of the story the way the writers of Latin America who use magical realism work with it. The people in the, the characters in the book have interactions with the dead all the time and they don't make a big deal of it. They, their grandmother comes and goes. The, they have conversations with these departed members of their families or people that they've loved. And it's just not a, a thing that causes people to go, oh, my God, mm-hmm. it's just part of their life. And I thought, well, I'm going to use that tradition and have Jack be that kind of a ghost and have Els be what they call receptive to the spiritual world in such a way that she would be able to see him. Not everybody can. Only the receptive ones can. And that she would sort of let him in, let him into her life through her receptivity, through wanting to kind of connect with him and wanting to connect with the spirit world because she's lost two people that she loved so much, her father and her lover, her fiance. And she's open to the possibility that she might connect with them. And so I wanted Jack to be a a presence and to have a point of view and to be a real character and to, and to be something of a catalyst to Elvis's coming to grips with her own life and with her own future and with what she must do in reaching out to her estranged mother to have a chance at love and connection again. Why is it so easy? Why is it so easy for Elle's to keep Jack's furniture and the layout of his kitchen and almost as if she moved into someone else's life. Well, she is a little bit moving into his life and she gets checked for that by uh, Jason, one of the characters, when she says at one point, it's like I married my belongings with Jack's and made a nice melange of it. And they, he says, wait a minute, Jack didn't marry anybody and you have no right to his life. And the idea that she could appropriate or try to appropriate a life is something that is a sort of a theme of the book. But she does fall in love with Jack's house, and it is as he left it. He dies. It's not clear whether he died as a suicide or in an accident or in a a tragedy that he provoked. But he's gone. And he left behind a boarded up house with all of his possessions in it. He just walked out the door. So she buys the house that way. And in it, she gets this whole life story and all of these things that can teach her about what it's like to live in Nevis. Books about the flora and fauna, books about the birds, books about the history, books about the ghosts. And so he leaves her sort of a way to learn about the world that she has entered. And she takes advantage of it. She reads her way through his library, which is extensive, as a way to keep herself from being desperately lonely, but also as a way to find out what she's gotten herself into. 
Can you just briefly touch upon the theme of forgiveness in mm. Forgiveness is not what I thought this book was about until I finished it and had revised it and really was grappling with themes. And then I thought, oh, yes, everybody in this book is in need of forgiveness, either from someone or from themselves. It really is a stories of redemption. People have exiled themselves. They have isolated themselves from their past. They have taken up new lives. They have to forgive themselves in order to move forward. They have to forgive others in order to move forward. Jack can't escape his connection to the world. He can't go off into whatever his otherworldly life is without forgiveness from the women he wronged. He needs Elsa's help to attain that because she's still alive and he's not. She needs to forgive her mother. She needs to forgive herself. And she needs to forgive her fiancé for dying and leaving her. And, you know, that grief that one has that is thwarted love, it ends up turning into anger. And she needs to grapple with that. So at, at so many levels, this ended up being a book about forgiveness. And I, I, it wasn't intentional, but I realized that I had been working on forgiveness themes the entire time I was writing this, and they just came up all over the place. Mm -hmm. Like so, weeds. Yeah. No, no, like wildflowers. So, <laughs> so Alice, what are you working on now? I'm working on another novel, very, very different novel. Its working title that I love is Posthumous. Um, it, do, it does not have a ghost in it. It does, however, have a very critical character who has died before the book starts or just as the book opens. It's the story of a couple. I'm fascinated about the inner workings of marriages and the fact that nobody ever knows what's going on inside somebody else's marriage. This is a literary power couple in New York City. So it takes place in New York City and in the Hamptons. And I've lived in both of those places. So I am pulling on knowledge of those locations. And it's about a couple that has each of the people have so many secrets from each other, but they also are not what they seem to be to the world at large. So they have a very public life that's hiding a very private life. And the wife is the one who dies and she sets her husband up to be exposed. And how he grapples with that and how she forces him to deal with the lies that he's been telling for so long is part of what she leaves as a legacy, but it's not entirely revenge. Hmm. Okay. I'm intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been lovely talking to you and I wish you a lot of uh, luck during this difficult time when you can't actually do anything live when everything's online. Thank you so much. And this interviews like this and conversations like this are part of what I can do. And it's been such a pleasure. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host of New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. 
Today, I've been talking with Alice C. Early, author of The Moon Always Rising. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As New Book Network listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash nbn forward slash join.